Welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so glad you're with us today. You know, having spent all of 50 years researching the afterlife and the greater reality so I could better understand my childhood experiences of light, that's why I did it, I can finally say to you now that I'm very glad I did all that. Only think about it for a minute. What if you researched the afterlife, tried to understand what's really going on, and in the end you were able to find nothing at all? No God, no happy afterlife, no eternal love and joy, nothing I didn't realize until after I had already discovered what's true that this was a risky thing to do. To ask the question, you have to be able to bear the answer, and fortunately the answer has been all wonderful. Of course, I haven't spent all day, every day of my life just doing afterlife research. I've married, I've reared children, practiced law, lived my life. So it was years before I was altogether sure about where all the evidence was leading us. But eventually... Whenever I would meet a fellow researcher, he or she and I would be endlessly finishing one another's sentences. We all had learned the same things. There's no better proof than that. If you do this research, we all come to the same glorious place. I have come to love all the whole earnest tribe who have shared my journey of afterlife research and discovery for my whole lifetime. The future world, which is where their work will at last become known and revered, is going to owe so much to these beautiful and selfless pioneers. And our guest today is one of the best. He's the great pioneering afterlife researcher, Michael Tim, who is with us for the fifth time. Oh, we've got to do this some more, Mike. Mike is such a star in this field that all the researchers and afterlife experts I know hold him in a special place in their hearts. They esteem him, of course, for his work. But he's the kind of person that you just love knowing. He's the author of seven books now about the afterlife and about the work of pioneers in afterlife communication. His past books include The Afterlife Revealed, Resurrecting Leonora Piper, The Articulate Dead, love that one, The Afterlife Explorers, actually I love them all, Dead Men Talking, think about that, and Transcending the Titanic, about the the Titanic survivors who communicated. It's a body of work that has no equal. And if you want a crash course in afterlife studies, just load up your Kindle and read all seven of Michael Tim's books. He can answer all your questions. So today we are in for a real treat. Mike's seventh book is called No One Really Dies, 25 Reasons to Believe in the Afterlife. Like all his books, it's brief, it's efficient, but it's also meaty and very satisfying. Michael, welcome. I'm so happy you're with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Roberta. I appreciate it. Uh, we're having a cold spell here in Hawaii, uh, but I'll I'll endure oh. the next hour or so. Uh, oh, oh dear! So cold spell when it's cold it's, in Hawaii. It's how, it's, what? it's uh, down in the low seventies, and you know. Oh, you poor baby! <laughs> Yeah. Is it? Well, in Austin, just a couple of weeks ago, we had almost a week of below freezing weather. Now that this has never happened in the lifetime. My neighbor's fifty-three. He said it's never happened in his life. And living in Austin, so I think we've got more to complain about than you do. I mean, seventy it, degrees it, is actually wonderful. 
Yeah, we had to pull out. We had to sleep with a blanket the other night, and that's very unusual. Usually, it's just a sheet, but we had to, actually. My wife got a second blanket, so uh, you know. But we'll, we'll endure. You poor thing! I feel yeah. so bad for you. Yeah. Well, let, let's. I, I really enjoyed this book. I read the whole thing, and I want to make sure we talk about it and excite people about it because I think it's it's an important book. But I, I just. It's, you've been with us a few times now, but some of our listeners won't have a sense of who you are. So let's just very briefly give them an overview of how you've come to this really inspiring and wonderful place in your life. Yeah, well, I'm not really sure myself. I mean, it just sort of evolved after around uh, age 50. I grew up uh, in the Catholic Church and left the Catholic Church in my early 30s um, and uh, sort just sort of drifted and after I turned 50, I decided I needed some kind of um, connection to religion, and and um, I tried a few Protestant churches. They didn't work for me. And then one day I was um, I was in New York, uh, New York City, for um, a, a road running event. Uh, I was a coach of the Hawaii team at that time, and uh, decided to take a train down to uh, Florida, and stopped in Washington D.C. and Look for something to read at the book stand, and there was a, a book about reincarnation. Um, and I read that on the way down to Florida, and, and became fascinated with the subject. I'm not not I'm not as fascinated with it now as I was then. Yeah. Uh, I got from reincarnation, near near death experiences, and then the mediumship. But it's just something that uh, I found fascinating. And um, the older I got, and and um, been with it the last uh, 30, 34 years or so. Um, writing, I, I studied journalism in college, and and even though I was in um, insurance claims management during my career, I did a lot of uh, freelance writing, and and so I started writing about the subject for various um, journals and magazines and so forth, and retired in 2002, and just kept. Writing about it, started writing books after I retired, and as you said, that this is my seventh. I I wrote one book on running, but so I really got eight books. But um, uh, I, I'm not sure I have a ninth one in me, but I, I'm going to give it a try. I, I hope you do. No, I, the thing about your books that I think is great is that you make them easy and accessible. And not too long and not too sort of footnotey. They're not scholarly, but they are rich with scholarly information that just, just feels like fun to know. And they, you've, you've brought back to life a lot of the, of the pioneers. The early part of the 20th century was such a heyday and you've brought those people back to life in really wonderful ways. So, um, I just love reading your books. I'm excited that there is another one out that we can, we can all enjoy. You know, looking at your book, uh, this most recent one, um, I've noticed that you've got classic old afterlife evidence stories, and you've also got some some new ideas that have been developed more recently, um, all in the same book, and it all fits very well together. But what what were your criteria for choosing things for to include in this book? Yeah, what well, my focus is on the old stuff. I. I consider myself something of a historian now uh, on the pre-1935. I, I draw the line at 1935, or from 1850 to 1935. Yes. Uh, because, uh, I mean, first of all, the current uh, material on near-death experiences, uh, past life studies, uh, electronic voice phenomena, deathbed visions, and so forth, is, it, you know, the people people are writing about it now, and it's all copyrighted, so... Um, 
the old stuff is not well known to most people. In fact, many of the um, researchers, the authors that I run into on you know the current subjects, they don't know anything about it, which really surprises me. It um, is amazing, yes, because yeah. That's what convinced me, and I think it's what convinced you, too. All that wonderful old evidence, it must be preserved. It's so important. Yeah, I, I've, I've sort of um, divided the research um, into four different eras going back to 1850. Can I, can I mention them? Of course. Yeah, no, talk yeah. about this. Yeah, Yeah. okay. From, well, from 1850 to 1882, uh, I call it the mind-boggling era. There were a lot of... Um, Researchers, Judge John Edmonds, who was um, uh, Chief Justice of the New York State Supreme Court, uh, Professor Robert Hare, who was a chemistry um, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, James Mapes, who was also a well-known um, uh, professor of chemistry, uh, Alan Kardec, the French uh, educator, the, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was co-originator with Charles Darwin of the... Um, Natural Selection Theory of Evolution, Sir William Crookes, a well-known chemist, Sir William Barrett, yeah. um, oh, and, and not, some I haven't mentioned, but th their works are not really known. I mean, what surprised me is that in, when the Society for Psychical Research was formed in 1882, um, it was as, as if nothing had happened before then. They They never referred to all the, you know, the studies that went on. And one of the reasons is that much of it was... Um, Teachings. I mean, in fact, if you look at Judge Edmund's book, I don't know if you have that or have seen it, but it's, uh, it was co-authored by uh, Dr. George Dexter, um, and it's two volumes, almost a thousand pages. And wow. out of that thousand pages, I mean, there's about a hundred pages of their discussion of you know the evidence, but about nine hundred pages of it are teachings of coming supposedly. Uh, they say coming from Emanuel Swedenborg, the uh, famous. A Swedish scientist and um, Francis Bacon, the English philosopher, and there's more in those two volumes than you know you'll find in the Bible. Um, <laughs> and nobody, nobody. I mean, that, that's a, so much of the early um, research was not evidential communication; it was teachings. I mean, Alan Kardec, um, yes. uh, Stanton Moses. It's it's all about you know. Um, Trying to teach us what the uh, afterlife is like, or what what this world, you know, what what we're doing now in this world. Uh, uh, I, you know, re religion had been impeached at that time, as as you know. I mean, during the 18th and 19th century, uh, the age of reason, the age of enlightenment, and so forth. Uh, uh -huh. And a lot, a lot of people were sort of floundering. They didn't have a, you know, they, they had become nihilists. Uh, God was dead by 1882. Oh, my goodness. Um, and um, so that, that's what brought the Society for Psychical Research in, you know, into play. They decided they, they have to have some, they had to have some formal organization to document all this material that um, uh, was being researched. But they, they focused strictly on the evidential, you know, they, as far as, you know, teachings go, or knowledge, or wisdom, however you want to classify it, they just ignored that. So they they started from scratch, from scratch in 1882, and then, um, you know, this went on until about 1930, 1935 in that era, area, and um, then I, I guess um, science, or the, the, the researchers had enough of it. Uh, they felt that they were just reinventing the wheel, or 
whatever, and, and we're never going to get any, any definite answers. So parapsychology came into effect uh, during the 1930s, and they wouldn't talk about spirits. They wouldn't talk about the afterlife. Uh, it was just ESP and and PK, psychokinesis, um, and you know, spirits and, and survival became sort of dirty words. Um, and that, you know, more or less continued in parapsychology. But, you know, then in 19, uh, during the 1950s, we had the Brady Murphy case, which brought reincarnation right. back into view. And then in, during the 1960s, um, uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson of the University of Virginia wrote a book, uh, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. Oh, wonderful. Um, so that, 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 and of course, Edgar Casey was in there too during the 1940s and 50s. So that, that subject, um, uh, was sort of rec- resurrected during that, that period. And then, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Raymond Moody's 1975 book, um, uh, Life After Life, um, sparked uh, an interest in that subject. But nobody really you know, gave any attention to the the old research, especially that uh, um, before 1900, and, and that's what I have tried to bring back um, and put in more simple terms. I mean that the old researchers that they would you know take two pages, or one paragraph would take two pages, and uh, um, you had to read it three times to figure out what they were saying. So I tried to you know, use my journalism training to to uh, say it in much more simple terms. When I started to do this research, which was the very start of the 1970s, I I, did, I couldn't find that stuff. There actually was nothing that I could find. There was an interest after 1975 when near death uh, doctor as you point out, uh, Dr. Moody um, coined the term near-death experiences, which of course are not death. Everyone, a near-death, if someone comes back and tells the tale, that person has never actually been dead. They have kept their silver cord attached and they go on living. But they had a very interesting experience, but it wasn't where the dead are. So I, I always have to say that, Mike, because so many people think and, and are so confused by uh, what happens in near-death experiences, but they're not typical to death because they're not death. But anyway, having said that, um, after early, I'd say early eighties when I was, when I first began to find all that old material and I thought it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, there was so much in it. Uh, I've, not so much, the, the area you're studying is a little ahead of where I was, but there, say the first 30 or 40 years of the 20th century was a heyday of communication through deep trance mediums and, and through, uh, channels also. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful, and it's so consistent. I mean, all these communications, hundreds and hundreds of them, received in southern Great Britain and in the eastern United States, you never find an outlier. No one says, oh, and everybody turns purple when they get there, or oh, they're all just blobs. Or something. There's nothing inconsistent. They're all in the same place. Doesn't that strike you as astonishing proof that this is real? I mean, it was like it was like if I had never been to Hawaii, it would be like reading a bunch of accounts from people who are in Hawaii and they're telling me all about it, and and I can I can picture it because it's all consistent. I agree. I, I'm sitting here and I, I have a spare bedroom that I call my library, and I've, I'm surrounded by about 700 books, and out of those 700, I'd say about 300 
300 of them are pre-1950. Yes. I used to go hunting for them. I mean, my trips were, wherever we took a trip to, you know, I'd go to bookstores. And one of my favorite places was Hay on Wye in England, which is is known as the used book capital of the world. I think it's still there, but I'm not, not sure. But anyway, they, they have about um, maybe 40 shops in town. And out of those 40 shops, I'd say uh, 25 of them are used bookstores. So I made a couple of trips there and and came back. That was the one you could take two suitcases on your plane. And so I'd come back with a full suitcase full of of books. And, and, you know, once, um, you know, I could find them on the Internet, that that took away the joy of, of, um, (laughs) you know, going to bookstores and hunting for them. So I I think I have, you know, 97% of all that I am going to find now. But every, every now and then I'll come across an old one that I wasn't aware of. Now, I, I think it's, what's great about that period is that it's all naive because the people who were doing the research often where they were lay people, but they were, they believed they were doing cutting edge scientific research up until sort of the late twenties, early thirties. They did. They, they were, they were assembling it. Then they started doing book tests. Um, remember those? They, they would, would, um, with some spirit, communicating spirit would say to the the researcher in the room, you know, go to this address, and um, on the second floor behind uh, the door, there's a bookcase. The fourth book in on the second shelf is read. Open that on page 43. This is the top line, or something weird like that. It was just there's no way you could fake fake that. Those people knew. In fact, I, I, that there's a whole book of them. I can't remember now who the researcher was. But um, an, an old original book that's full of those damn book tests. And what, I'm sorry to swear, I shouldn't swear on air, but still it's so profound that they could, the spirits were trying to prove to the scientists that they were real, and they did try. But then in the end, of course, the scientists said, no, we will only study materialism, we won't study this. And to this day, a hundred plus years later, to this day, we are stuck with having this precious proof proof it's proof that we are eternal beings and it's shut away from people doesn't that upset you yeah it does uh charles drayton thomas was the yes, researcher yes, yes. we were trying to think oh, of the yes. fact is three or four books are about six inches from my shoulder here as, oh, <laughs> as yeah. i'm sitting here um but I, uh, I and they were, that, yeah. that wasn't one of the chapters in my current book it wasn't a prior book but uh it got cut i had a sixty thousand word limit and so i had uh since I had written about that in a prior book, I that yeah. was one of the ones I had to cut. But I agree agree with you that that's one of the best uh, and most evidential cases, the the book cases and the newspaper cases, which yes. sort of went along with it. Yes, that that's right. I mean, it's you can see um, um, Mr. Thomas getting more and more discouraged. If you read his books in order, you can see him basically giving up. And that's a horrible thing, that he has the proof in his hand. He has the proof that our lives are eternal, that the dead live. And yet they wouldn't allow the proof. To this day, they won't allow the proof to the world. But why is that? Have you thought about that? Uh, Yeah, in fact, um, uh, you know, in the appendix of my latest book i had 30 reasons why the yes yeah and i think we talked about that briefly last time and it's primarily yeah. i think that the two basic reasons are um 
religious fundamentalism and scientific fundamentalism. It's, I mean, it's religion uh, thinks it's all demonic, and and science uh, thinks it's all hogwash. <laughs> yes. You know, I, yeah. I, I was invited to um, a talk here a few years back uh, by, I can't remember his name, but he had a near-death experience, and his book was a bestseller. Um and one of my friends who happens to be a lawyer and he belonged to the local um uh lawyers for Christ or something I forget the name of the organization, but um he invited me as a guest. I went and, and he introduced me to the um president of the organization and Bob uh told her that, you know, I had written a few books on, on spirituality and she asked me what they were about and as soon as I said, you know, said the word medium, she 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 said, "How can you live with yourself?" And she did an about face oh. and walked away. Oh, so I've had that, that, I've that, had that, that sort of typifies uh, the yes. religious view. I we I have some, you know, I I'm still uh, considered myself a Christian. I, in fact, I have a a large picture of Jesus I'm looking at right now. Uh, below him are pictures of Sir Oliver Lodge and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So I, yeah, so I, I still consider myself a Christian, just not an Orthodox Christian, and you know, it really mystifies me when, when I hear somebody like my friend Bob, who's a retired lawyer, um, um, he, he shares the same view as the president of the organization. He thinks it's all demonic, and he wants to, me to, you know. Um, Think about it and and uh, make sure I don't go to hell. But um, oh, this is. Do you know Jesus encourages us to seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. He tells us to look for the. He tells us to look at all of everything. And in the Bible, it says John. What is it, John? I can't remember. What it's one John four uh, colon one. Yeah. Try the spirits to see if they're of God. Now, right. why would the Bible tell you to try the spirits if you're not, if it's demonic? No, some yeah. of, there are demons. You got to be careful, and any good medium will try the spirits to see if they're of God. Mm. But the reason that, that that the religious don't want anywhere, the, or the you know the leaders, the religious leaders don't want anybody to to do what Jesus suggested we do, which is to seek. The reason that they don't want that is that we will learn the truth. From the people who are not now in bodies, and we will not want to follow the religious lies anymore. I'm a Christian too. I think I'm more of a Christian than I've ever been, but I don't believe any of the things the Christian Church teaches. It, none of it came from Jesus. Should he be the reason for the season? You know, think about it. I, I would think he should. So I think a lot of the people listening now are, are devoted to Jesus, but they just understand that religion is not at all based on anything Jesus said. It isn't, and, and that's tragic. But he mm-hmm. did teach beautiful things, and he said that his teachings are what's important. If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that's what we're trying to do now, is just find those truths that Jesus wants us to look for. Nothing demonic about that, my dear. Not at all. <laughs> I, I agree. As I, uh, you know, When people ask me how I view Jesus, I say I look up upon him as sort of the Chairman of the board on the other side doesn't doesn't have to be God per se. I don't know what God I mean. God is is beyond my comprehension, you know. Uh, but you know, being chairman of the board is good enough for me. Yeah, I'll say so. And that's actually a wonderful way to, to to think about him. Yeah, he's very very active in the afterlife and and teaching and wonderful. But 
all right, going back to your book, which of the cases, these are all meant to provide evidence to, for people who may not even know about all of these phenomena. Which of the cases that you talk about in your new book do, are the most compelling to you as evidence of, of the afterlife? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a toss-up between the um, paraffin hands case and the George Palou case, uh, and, I, and I say paraffin hands is probably the best um, physical evidence. Uh, can I summarize that a little bit? Uh, of course, yeah. Everybody yeah. Say, what? Yeah. <laughs> that, that that took place in 1920, right. and uh, involved two. Um, uh, well-known French researchers, Dr. Charles Richet, who just happened to win a Nobel Prize in 1913, and uh, Dr. Gustave uh, Gilly, who was a uh, well-known physician um, in France, and they conducted some research with um, a medium named Frenet, a Polish medium, Franek Kluski was his name, and like so many mediums who gave off ectoplasm, it had to be in the dark, so they couldn't, you know, light um, somehow affects the ectoplasm and, and injures the medium. Not yeah. not for all mediums. There were there were stronger mediums like uh, D.D. Hume, who could produce in the light, but most mediums are, you know, um, sensitive to light, and so they had to do their experiments in the dark. Um, but what they did, they, under very controlled conditions in Geely's laboratory, they brought the medium in, locked the doors behind him, just the two of them. They sat on each side of him, holding his hand to make sure he didn't, or the, first he was, he was trip searched to make sure he didn't bring anything into the, uh, laboratory room. Um, and they held his hand, and all the, during the manifestation, the spirits would, would come, they could vaguely see something there, but uh, you know it was just too dark to see anything. But they asked the spirits to produce hand molds. They brought in bowls of wax, paraffin wax. Had the spirits dip their hands in the wax and produce hand molds. Uh, and there, I think there are 13 of them that are still on display in, in at the Metaphysical Institute in in um, in Paris. Uh, and there are pictures of them. You can go online and see pictures of these hand to ash, a couple of, uh, of foot bowls also. Um, and of course, the, the skeptics say, well, you know, somehow he, he brought his own moles in and tricked him. But in, in one of the cases, Dr. Geely put some, a special blue dye into the paraffin mold so that if, you know, to rule out the possibility that he did somehow smuggle his own hand mold into the room, you know, it, the, the, it wouldn't have the blue dye in it. So anyway, the, the mole was produced. The blue dye showed up in the mole. There's no question in their minds that that, that there was no fraud of any kind. Um, but still, very few people know about those hand moles, and the skeptics just sort of shrug and say, well, there had to be some trickery. There had to be some fraud because spirits don't exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know. Let's make sure people understand what we're talking about. Ectoplasm is produced, if someone becomes a, a very developed physical medium, their body begins to produce this whitish stuff that comes out of orifices of their bodies, right? And that then the, the, the spirit beings that, that are all working with them can use that ectoplasm 
to mold things to or to or to coat their own bodies so that they can be three dimensional, right? Am I is that what I'm, is what I'm saying? Yes, right? that's right. And you know, um, the skeptics will say that they regurgitated it; that they swallowed something, and then when they went into the room, they regurgitated it. But it didn't only come from the mouth; it you know oh. oozed out of their nostrils, their ears, and and I won't mention what other parts of the body. <laughs> other parts <laughs> of the body too, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, there's no question about it. As as Roche said, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, ectoplasm is real. And, and um, you know, n- a number of other researchers uh, took photographs of it. There are photographs online, but the skeptics um, say, you know, it was somehow faked. Um, they're not skeptics. They're debunkers. If they were debunkers, skeptics, yeah. De- they would yeah. be people with an interest in learning the truth. No, these people are desperately afraid of the truth. And so what? So anyway, to finish talking about the molds, so so the the spirit would would coat its non-material body with this ectoplasm, which actually is a part. It's a part of the body of the medium, right? It'll snap back into the medium if, if light comes into the room. No, the, the spirit would materialize through the ectoplasm, yes. but then put its hand into the paraffin wax, right. to, you know, to develop the mold. Um, so it, uh, you know, some spirits were able to produce, you know, their entire bodies through the ectoplasm, but that was yes. very rare. It had to be a very strong medium yes. to do that. And most of them just produced hands. And and if you look at some of the pictures, they're very weird. Uh, some of them are flat and they're, they're very hokey. But as Dr. Geely explained, uh, in the development process, they go through this hokey stage and sometimes they just halt there. The, the, the spirits weren't strong enough to really yeah. develop a full materialization. So they did come out uh, looking hokey. And it, as I've uh, written before, it's sort of like uh, asking me to draw a picture of myself. I mean, the spirit had to imagine what he look, he or she looked like when alive and then think that picture into the ectoplasm. And some of them oh. didn't even remember, you know, some of them didn't know what they looked like or couldn't remember That's what right. they looked like, and That's especially right. before photography, you know. Would you look, you know, would you know, if, you did, if we didn't have photography, That's a very do we know what we'd look like? If I, if I didn't have a picture of myself before age 10, do I know what I'd look like uh, as a kid? I, I don't think so. Uh, well, so a lot of these spirits uh, tried to to uh, visualize what they look like when alive, and they, you know, it didn't come out the same as they really look like. So people would look, you know, people who knew them might look at it and say, "No, that that wasn't my father. That wasn't my yes. brother, or whatever." So that, you know, they just assumed it was it was fraud because the uh, materializations didn't. Um, produce looking exactly like what they thought they should be. Yeah. No, I it, it is so fascinating what 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 these beings were able to do with their for example, um Leslie Flint who in the middle of the 20th century was um a direct voice medium and I, as I understand it, he would produce there would be a, an ectoplasm voice box like in the air beside his head or something and the, the spirit who is going to communicate would modify that voice box and would able to be able – people who had died recently, you know, people who were famous would, would speak through it, and they would sound like the person they had been. 
could you modify a voice box to sound like your voice? First, you have to remember your voice. Then you have to be skilled at modifying the voice box. That's so amazing to me, and yet it worked. I I agree. And um, Etta Etta Wright, uh, who has a chapter in my book, I think she was probably the most famous uh, direct voice medium. People, a lot of people don't even know the difference between direct voice and trans voice. I mean, right uh, and. Trans voice is, is when the voice is actually coming through the medium's vocal cords. Yes. Uh, Leonora Piper was a trans voice medium to begin with. She, she became an autom- more of an automatic writing medium in her later years, but uh, she began as a trans voice medium. But uh, direct voice is when the voice actually comes from outside the medium. It's, you know, like they hear it coming from two or three feet above the medium, and supposedly the the spirits have produced an artificial voice box from the ectoplasm, yes. and uh, the voice comes through. And, and Most of the researchers said the direct voice was most convincing to them, much more convincing than the trans voice, but um, there aren't that many, there weren't that many at that time, trans voice or, or direct voice mediums around, and I don't know if there are any today. There might, I, I heard about one in England, but uh, uh, I haven't seen anything um, published or produced about her. No, I, I mean, it really is a fabulous thing. Um, in 1960, Thomas Jefferson talked through um, uh, uh, Leslie Flint. And when I first heard that recording, it's not even a very good recording, I was astonished because that's how he sounded. How do I know mm-hmm. how he sounded? I was in his last lifetime as a minor character. And and I, I recognized the voice immediately, which to me was creepy as all get out because I only knew that I had been in his life. But how could you know you're going to remember a dead person's voice for hundreds of years? Very strange. This is all so much fun, don't you think? Because we learn more and more and more fascinating things the more you study it. You never come to an end. Don't you think that's the best part of it? Yeah. I'm still um, rereading and learning a lot of the books I have around me. I, you know, I read them the first time, and they're they're more meaningful on the second or the third. Yeah. Oh, and, sure. Of course. Of course. So, what what is? So talk a little bit about Edda Wright. She she was she's someone you really featured in your book. So, and I had never heard of her. And I was fascinated by that. But she seemed to be able to do a lot of things. Um, very strong medium. Yeah. She. Um, Lived late eighteen hundred, uh, yeah, the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and she was um, actually William Stead or Steed, however you want to pronounce it. I've heard it pronounced both ways. Was on his way over from England on the Titanic to escort yes. her back to England when the ship went down. Um, but uh, somebody else came later and, and escorted her over to England. She gave a number of uh, very good. Uh, uh, seances in England, and they're all, um, not all, but most of them are written about by um, Admiral Usbon Moore, was his name. He was a psychical researcher, retired uh, British naval officer, and th- th- those two books, to me, are right at the top of my list. Um, um, I can't um, I can't think of the names of them right now, but um, uh, there's just so much phenomena in there, and she, 13 different languages came through her. I mean, she, according to Moore, she sp- spoke only Yankee. Um, and, uh, you know, yet in their sittings, 13 
14 different languages um, came through, including Serbian and oh, wow. uh, Arabic and and uh, a few other Greek and uh, you know. Um, so how how do you explain these languages coming through? Not just a, not just a couple of words, but long discourses in various languages. And there, there are other mediums. A judge uh, Judge Edmonds, who I mentioned earlier, his daughter was um, became a medium. Um, and I think seven or eight languages came through her. And then one of the, one of the cases in my book about the, about um, um, Confucius, uh, the, the the medium was George Valentine of New York. Um, he also had like eleven different languages coming through him. And oh, the one you know, is, to me, that's the most mind-boggling case. The one it in my is. book about. Uh, about Confucius, uh, and, and if I can relate just a little bit about that, uh, yeah. um, a, a judge uh, and his wife in New York, I, I can't think of their names offhand anyway, but they invited uh, Dr. Neville, Neville Wyment, who was a um, Oxford language professor and happened to be in New York at the time, they invited him to their house, not telling him why, you know, it was a dinner party, they didn't tell him that they were spiritualists and were going to have a medium there that night because they were afraid he wouldn't come uh, if they told him. But anyway, he came and there were you know half a dozen other people there, including George Valentine, the medium. And then they let him in on what was going to happen, and he thought it was uh, you know he was very skeptical at the time. But of course, um, this voice started coming after they they settled down, and and um, Valentine went into uh, a trance state. Um, uh, the direct voice started coming through in a ancient Chinese dialect. Well, um, Wyman understood, you know, he he knew yeah. several dialects of Chinese. He was only vaguely familiar with the ancient Chinese dialect, but he he could make out what the voice was saying, and he asked who it, you know, who it, who it was, and um, it, I forget the name Confucius went by, but he gave that name and in this ancient Chinese dialect, and Wyman asked him, "Can you change to a more modern dialect?" And which he did, and they carried on a conversation. Wyman was very skeptical, you know. At the time, he thought somebody was playing a joke on him, but he couldn't figure out how they could get somebody to speak, you know, you know, an ancient Chinese dialect. Who would go along? He figured there's only about five or six people in the world that could uh, speak that dialect. Uh, so he went along with it, and he says, "Okay, you know." Can you tell me if you're really Confucius or whatever whatever name he went by? Um, he gave the first line of a poem, uh, one of Confucius's poems, and Confucius carried it right through the next fourteen lines, um, you know, without any prompting from from Wyman. And then he tried another poem, and Confucius recited the whole poem for him. Oh, so how, how, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about Fraud. I mean, how how would the if if the judge and his wife were and Valentine were, were trying to trick um, the professor? How would they know he's going to ask you know to you know for these poems to be recited by the the um, spirit? So I mean, but and then the question. I mean, was it really Confucius? I mean, according to um, uh, some theories, there's, there are group souls out there. There's a group soul representing Confucius that might have um, uh, come across as Confucius, and that gets very complex. I don't know. <laughs> you know. To me, that's a distinction without a difference, really. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. If 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 spirits, whether they're a group or, or not, are able to um, get a medium to speak um, uh, ancient Chinese, and they have all this knowledge, who cares if it's the actual Confucius? That's still extraordinary. I think that's right. amazing. Right, and then uh, Wyman uh, came back the next several nights and heard uh, nine other languages um, spoken. He he spoke all of them and conversed with the um, with the people. One of them was his father-in-law, who came through in a um, very English accent and with a certain drawl that he recognized his father-in-law. You know, oh but um, you know, how does someone? Um, Take all that. Well you, you, you can't. I mean obviously that's not possible. And any any attempt to sort of come up with a way to, to fake that would require an even more extraordinary explanation than the simple obvious one, which is that the person is still alive and doing the same thing he or she could have done, you know, when they were when they were on uh, on Earth. It's just it, it really is. I, I think that the, your 30 reasons at the end of your book are very important for people to understand because we are being fooled. We are being fooled by our religions and we are being fooled by science, which is both of which are determined that none of the evidence that your life is eternal will ever come to light. And, of course, they're holding back the sea. There's no way they're always going to be able to do this. And one of the things we speculate about among ourselves is what what, what will be the evidence that makes it overwhelming. I think it's going to be eventually an app will be developed, which is able to let you call up great, 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 you know, grandma and get her recipe. When you can do that, when you can talk to the dead yourself through an app on your phone and they're trying to make this happen now, it's hard, but they're trying to make it happen. I think that might be, might be one, one way to break this stupid um, stonewalling by scientists. It's just absurd. Yeah, I agree. What, what, the, the title of one of my books was, since you're a lawyer, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, it was going to be raised judicata, which, you know, oh. as you know, the legal term is, it's, you know, it has it's, been decided. It's been decided, right, right. You know, um, but the publisher didn't think that would, you know, most people would well, <laughs> know what that meant. It wouldn't, wouldn't attract too many people, but, uh, uh, it's going to be if I have an if I have an eighth book, it'll be one of the chapters read judicata. Well, we ha- we do have to make it be, there be an eighth book. Well, we'll talk about because you know so much and it's so interesting to people. The way that you put it together makes it just so interesting and accessible. One of the things that that I think has been a mistake in the past is that in order to you know try to impress scientists and in order to try to impress. You know, religionists, many people who early workers in these fields tried to be so sort of serious and and, you know, hear all these footnotes. And I think that most people just want to know the truth. And when it, when when they hear the truth, it does ring true to them. I mean, what convinced me was all of those early 20th century communications, um, Charles Drayton Thomas, all of them. We're researching real communications, and there's no way every single one of them, hundreds of them, could all be talking about the same place, but they're all different communications. All these tourists who are there are telling us they're sending postcards back now that they're home. They're sending postcards back to us. Um, I think it's going to happen. Um, it's going to happen within the next few years. So I don't know that you and I will see it, but it'll be within you know a decade or two. The, the weight of the evidence will be just overwhelming by that point. 
Well, what, I hope what, so. What, what do you hope people take away from our conversation today? What, what do you most want people to, to, to take away? Well, just to consider the old research, uh, you know, find some books, uh, not necessarily mine, but, uh, you know, look at the bibliography or the reference section of my book and look at some of those old books and, you know, Judge Edmonds, for one, start with him. If you can, his books are, you can still find, um, his book was called Spiritualism by Judge, Ed, uh, Judge John Edmonds and, and George Dexter, and you can find it online at, you know, bookfinder.com or whatever, and start with that. There's some, you know, there, there are six or seven books from before 1960 that I'd begin with. Um, but you have to have the patience, uh, to do it. I have a friend, um, uh, who's 93 years old. He's a retired sociology professor and, and, um, he, he claims that he never gave the afterlife a thought until his wife died about six or seven years ago. And I gave yes. him one of my books and, and, uh, he read it and said, well, I don't know. And then I gave him my, gave him this latest book, 20, you know, the no one really dies. I gave him that book about a week and a half ago. And he, he called me yesterday, said he finished reading it. He says he's, he's moved from 50% to 65 percent so you know i don't i don't think he'll ever be 100 percent and i i don't understand how he could have lived to be 83 or before his wife died i think he was 845 uh how he could never have thought about it i mean it just boggles my mind that he never gave any thought to it no this is the most important inquiry any of us can make in our lives because Either life is a tragedy, you know, you go through, uh, with, have all your hopes and dreams and loves and all of that, knowing that in the end you're going to blink out like a light. None of it is, none of it matters at all. Either that's what life is, or we are here for a brief, wonderful time, but the, the good time comes after we go home. That's the truth. You are eternal by your very nature, and knowing that, how could anybody? How can anybody want not want to know that? Not want to rebel in that? I don't know. You're right. You're absolutely right, Mike. But you do the best you can, and I so appreciate all the work that you've done to put all of this together for so many people. Now, you don't have your own website, right? No, I just use my. I have write a blog at White Crow Books. Um, that's I, I'm computer challenged, and and uh, <laughs> yeah, so. I, I was asked to um, do a couple of interviews on Zoom, and I had no idea what Zoom was, and yeah. tried to put it on my computer, but I failed, and so I, I, uh, I, I don't know if I'll find somebody to help me put it on. But uh, computers are not my. I've been working on them since 1988, I think, but I just know how to do the basics. Yeah, me too. But that turns out to be enough which is good. Well, we're going yeah. to have you back. We'll have you back in the fall to, um, because I already have another topic in mind that's because we haven't really been able to finish this book. There's so much more in it. And I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So I'll be in touch with you about what I'd like to talk about next time. But thank you for being here. It, it's always such a delight to talk to you and it always is over too quickly. Bless you, sir. I love, love what you do. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on. Everyone, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. I'm so glad you were with us today, especially, especially today. Please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began and you never will end. And when you really get what that means and all its implications, it changes everything in your life for the better. 
Next week, our guest will be the young consciousness researcher, Mark Gober. He'll be with us for the third time. Mark is a free-spirited thinker. He's a partner in a Silicon Valley investment bank and strategy firm who became curious about the building body of evidence that consciousness is a lot more important than just the byproduct of your, you know, meat brain. So he did some research, and the result was two wonderful books, An End to Upside-Down Thinking in 2018 and An End to Upside-Down Living in 2020. Next week, Mark and I are going to check in, and we're going to get to find out just what he's up to lately. I asked him for a topic, what we should call this, and he said he wanted to talk about spiritual development, which seems to me to be the next logical step for many thoughtful people who have made the astonishing discovery that what we experience as human consciousness is actually primary and pre-existing. So let's learn from a tech investment banker who really has kicked over every possible one of the traces how he goes about accomplishing spiritual growth. And this week we've been talking with our beautiful, beautiful friend, the great afterlife researcher Michael Tim, T-Y-M-N, who has been with us for the fifth time. Mike Tim is a for, the, probably, I think, the foremost living afterlife researcher at this point. He's a, he's a gentle man, unassuming, as you can see, but really delightful. And he's amazingly self-effacing, given all that he has accomplished. His new book has been badly needed. It's called No One Really Dies, 25 Reasons to Believe in an Afterlife. I think it's great. And even people who have done considerable research still can suffer from some nagging doubts. And for them, Michael Tim has assembled some of the best current evidence for the afterlife. He demonstrates not only how the afterlife could be true, but also why it is impossible, really impossible for it not to be true. If you read Mike Tim's seven engrossing, wonderful books that well summarize the long history of afterlife research, he will be able to help you put your last doubts to bed so you can look forward with nothing but joy to what really does come next. As you know, my own nonfiction books are Liberating Jesus, My Thomas, The Fun of Dying, The Fun of Staying in Touch, The Fun of Growing Forever, The Fun of Living Together, and soon The Fun of Loving Jesus, Embracing the Christianity that Jesus Taught. For young children, there's The Fun of Meeting Jesus, and you can order all these books through bookstores on Amazon, and the adult books are available as audiobooks. Never forget that if you want to talk about any of my books, or if you just want to talk about anything at all, you can always contact me through the green contact block on robertagrimes.com. I answer every email. It can take me a week, but I answer them. So just make sure you give me your correct address. My dear friends, my role in your life is just to help you get to the truth in a few years' time. People have reported back that when I say it's going to take you about two years if you do the work, they say that's just about right. You can go from being terrified to die to knowing, knowing that the best part of your life is going to come at the end of it when you get to go home. I want to help you all I can to get there. So just send me an email if you have questions. Meanwhile, this has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy. Please make the most of this coming week in our one reality, knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being. And you, most of all in the entire universe, you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.